0: Hi, riders. Welcome back to Ride Between the Wines. This week, we have an action-packed, fantastic episode. I'm speaking with Ian Birch, winemaker at Archery Summit, which is in Willamette Valley, Oregon. Such a fun, cool, interesting guy. Got a little geeky and just talked about all the amazing stuff they're doing out there. So, very enjoyable. Thanks so much, Ian. Uh, And then, at the end of the episode, I'm speaking with Josh Taylor in a brand new segment called... We don't have a name yet. We're working on that. Uh, But it should be a lot of fun. So, uh... Buckle up, let's ride.
1: The world we live in is an amazing one, full of passion, wonderment, and of course, fine wine. This is the story of one man's journey to fully understand and appreciate that world. So kick the tires and light the fires. It's time to ride between the wands. Indian in
2: style. Just a whisper of cherry. Very nice legs. This is so perfectly
0: balanced. Such an old world style.
1: Is this laced with tobacco? A total fruit bomb. I say, sir, so Fonzie. <laughs> All
0: right, guys, welcome back to Ride Between the Wines. I am very excited to introduce Ian Birch, who's the winemaker for Archery Summit. Um, hey, Ian, how you doing?
2: How you doing? Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. Uh,
0: I'm so excited. I so I have to tell you a couple things. First of all, I'm absolutely in love with Oregon. Um, I think Willamette Valley is some of the best wines that's produced in America. You're, I, I've done one or two audio podcasts. You might be my first video podcast since we since I moved to video where somebody from Willamette's been here, but um, man, I absolutely love the stuff up there. I'm really excited about talking about the Chardonnay because I feel like that's the amazing grape, yeah, uh, I feel like, I mean, we can talk about that, but I feel like Chardonnay doesn't get it to do, and maybe it's starting to finally get it, but um, yeah, but uh, thank you. Um Maybe we could just start off, and you tell me uh, who you are, how you got into winemaking, and how you got to Archery Summit, I guess.
2: Yeah, happy to. Yeah, so, you know, I grew up uh, Catholic, so I think there's always that sort of mythical uh, drink that the, the priest is holding in front of the the entire church, and you know, you, as you know, if you're Catholic, you get to start drinking them a lot sooner than the rest of the world. So I always uh, always had this sort of affinity to wine. Um, it seemed like everybody in the Bible got to drink. And, you know, if you showed up late to work, you got paid the same as everybody else. I was like, this 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 beverage is Pretty cool, it's um,
0: Jesus's first miracle, right? I mean, I know. if it wasn't for water to wine, we wouldn't even know who that dude was. I know, seriously. I mean,
2: <laughs> could you imagine if you like made water into whiskey? You know, I think, I think the world would probably be a lot different, it's very but true. uh, you know, you always have to pick something in this world. And um, I think I learned pretty early on that guys, you know, I, I forget who told me like, always work like somebody's looking over your shoulder, pick something and be really good at it because you know, something better comes along, they're gonna ask whoever you worked with and worked for how you worked. And it's like, all right, all right. So I picked wine early on. Um, I went, uh, I went to this awesome school, Oakmont high school, go Vikings, you know, and I remember like junior year by filling in college applications and I was just trying to figure out what to do. And thank God, my chemistry teacher brought up viticulture one day. And I remember popping my hand up and asking him like, what's that? And he's like, it's the science of growing grapes. And I was just, flabbergasted wow it's like you can you can do that you can study that And he's like yeah you make wine it's like oh my gosh i'm doing that so oh,
0: so cool my high wow. school did not tell me anything about making wine
2: bible oh. <laughs> belt though so, <laughs> so
0: it's probably part of it
2: <laughs> it's so funny this is the same teacher that got uh suspended for teaching kids how to make dry ice bombs out of uh dry ice and water you know just ice. closing them up and throwing them and scaring people i love so, it. He had a pretty good reputation, Mr. Gin, actually.
0: Uh, Shout out, Mr. Gin, wherever you are. Thank, thank
2: you, Mr. Gin. I owe him some wine. I <laughs> actually tracked him down, and um, I'm going to send him some wine and thank him for, you know, kind of leading me on this path. That's but awesome. I don't think I'm going to steer far from this path. Um, after high school, I went to um, Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo and studied wine and viticulture
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, while I was actually uh, in Australia doing my first internship i got accepted to cal poly so i i kind of um you know you you're in progress i'm doing an internship uh, i did an internship at penfolds
0: uh-huh.
2: and oh. i had one viticulture class under my belt i knew like that's kind of the way i wanted to go so um yeah i went to cal poly graduated uh with uh an emphasis in viticulture mm-hmm. and got the wine and viticulture degree and then I, I was off to the luar Straight after college, wow! Um, taught myself how to speak French. Uh, Pimsler read and speak, or speak and read essentials. <laughs> uh-huh. Just plugged them into my uh, my headphones, zipped off to class, and you know, just all the important stuff. You know, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty. Pretty girl, uh, wine, red wine, white wine, left and right, and straight. So, you know, I I picked up that pretty quickly. Um, I forged my documents. So that I could get the job in France, they asked if I had ever had French like <laughs> less lessons or classes, uh-huh. and I had my unofficial transcript. I signed up for the class and printed out my transcript, and then I deleted it because I needed to take another ag class to graduate. So, I mean, it, it worked. Um, yeah, wow, that's, I, that's great. It, it's it's a it's an amazing world. I mean. I, I've worked in South Africa, Australian, Australia, New Zealand. Um, I've worked in California, uh-huh. but I've been in Oregon for about ten years now, or actually even more. Two thousand eight, twelve years. Um, I have nineteen harvests under my belt from working abroad and, and in Oregon, and um, yeah, I just I have an affinity for Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. They're the wines I like to drink. Mm-hmm. I feel like. They show terroir very well. Um, I mean, Riesling, I think, is on the list. Chenin Blanc,
0: mm-hmm.
2: Syrah. I, I think those varieties, to me, really show place. And uh, I, I really like how Oregon kind of frames these varieties. And yeah, I'm, I'm still learning. I'm thinking about harvest coming up. And you always kind of, you get into this mode where you're like, oh, like it's here, it's coming. You know, like, I don't know, awesome. I don't know. Like, yeah, it's like, but it's like, no, I do. Like, you know, like the fruit's looking good. We got the labor, I uh, got all the fermenters. How many you harvests just, is this uh, for Archery Summit with you? So this will be, I would say 18, 19, 20, my third harvest. Third harvest, okay. Yeah, awesome. so okay. it's 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 incredible being part of this, this group. I mean, Gary Andrus started Archery Summit man, back in 1993 um mm-hmm. he had this like this idea about the dundee hills um i think the iries had already sort of set up shop domain joan um mm-hmm. there there was like this sort of calling for him to oregon you know he had the lens of napa like he he built um pine ridge in napa so he definitely had his winemaking chops um he was uh just a very large personality was able to pull a lot of capital and um, very keen investors his way, mm-hmm. and he looked at this hill in Dundee, and you know they had to kind of kick off people living in trailers, and you know um, build their faux chateau winery that is currently still all you know gravity fed. We can use gravity to do nearly everything, and the coolest part is the end of the quarter mile of caves underneath the building.
0: Uh-huh. It
2: stays cool all year long. Um, if you're freezing cold in the winter, you run down there and it's actually kind of nice, like 55 degrees. And then in the summer, if you're like, you're walking around the vineyards and you're you're smoking hot, you walk down to the cellar and cool right yeah. down. And it's just such a good environment for the wines. You know, like wine, wine barrels are no different than wine bottles. They don't like big temperature spikes. Uh-huh. Um, it gobbles up sulfur. It can make them a little more volatile. And um, I think if you have like nice humidity, nice temperature, your sulfur levels stay intact, and yeah, I I think the wine's definitely um, mature differently. Mm-hmm. So it's it's like walking into like a, an art shop and having every like piece of equipment you can ever imagine, all all your paint and paper and brushes, and you know, you can essentially create uh, anything you want. It it feels really good. I'm you know, the fifth winemaker to. I work at Archery Summit um, and it's a nearly you know, 30 year old brand now so it it definitely still feels like good like I feel I feel privileged to be there and you know like the people I work with are incredible my associate winemaker has been there and I'm gonna probably butcher this now because I've been there for a little while but it's I think 15 16 years nice. um, our venue manager's been farming in the Dundee Hills all but one year of my life and you know i've got like uh, the coolest sinologist anthony's like the most hungry dude that you've ever met and he knows a lot about a lot you know
0: uh-huh.
2: and uh, my my seller guy brandon who's probably the most humble guy in the world you know he, he uh he used to be a day trader so he's just like has this incredible ability for numbers and he's meticulous about everything so i i love it it's the yeah. it's the best thing i've I've fallen into, and yeah, I, I, I'm not planning on going anywhere for a while. It's a great place to be. I love it. That's a little bit about me and about archery, <laughs> though. Just to no, that out there.
0: no, that's great. Yeah. So um, you, you, uh, you said you did Australia for winemaking. You did France for winemaking, Loire, South Africa for winemaking, California for winemaking. And of all of those, your favorite is where you are right now. Not, not just Archery Summit. I, I imagine that's amazing to work for. But um, just getting to work with the Burgundian varietals and the Toir and all that, that's really your favorite?
2: I think so. I mean, when I was trying to, like, whittle it down, you know, you have opportunities. Like, I, I worked in France. Um, I've done, I did one harvest in the Loire. And then I did three in Burgundy. And I actually lived in Burgundy. Actually, in this little chateau behind me. Um, my wife and I moved there. So cool. Like That's I thought awesome. the place was haunted someday. You know, you'd like walk home at night after a couple of drinks and there's like, statues in the courtyard. It's like, you know, it's like that. There's there's like somebody walking around. This place is so big. And we're just like two tiny little people in it. But it was such a cool experience because, you know, in the new world, things are a little bit more calculated to me. You know, you clean everything really well. Um, you kind of are building things from the ground up, whereas like in Europe, people have been doing things for so long. I feel like the most basic question is sort of answered already. you you walk through the streets and you drink people's wine and you know a lot they don't talk about clones or root stocks or you know like fermentation mechanics. and they will and I think they do because, it's it's nice for people to to learn and it's great to teach right. because when you teach you learn more I think a lot of the time, but I think you know working in Oregon's awesome, and uh I like working here just because like compared to a lot of the other winemaking making places in the world, America pays better, you know like that's part of I'll give you that yeah now. my wife won't leave her family uh so you know they're they're in the states, so I you know i can't can't think too far out of here but I think some of the most memorable moments I've had have been in France As you go through the routines here uh-huh. and then you go to Burgundy and you're in somebody's cellar just like freezing your face off and they like start talking about uh, some barrel that they used or the fact that they store their barrels full of water and then empty them out and then fill them with wine and lose half a percent of alcohol by doing that. And you're like, what? Oh, that's I never thought about you it. yeah that's these these little things and i I think that the more you progress during your career, those little things can change the course of everything you do, and it's creating those opportunities to go and talk to people and uh you know don't don't pretend that you're like a no all pants, you know like uh-huh. be open to feedback um. Make your wines with intent, and get out there and taste and talk. Um, and I think a lot of those like pivotal moments that I've had in my career have been, you know, in Burgundy and in the Loire, just because. apparently I, I just lost you. we anyway, go. Just because, um, you know, you you're able to kind of see things just through a, a different lens. You know, it's uh. It's awesome to go. I was actually planning on going to Burgundy this year. We're uh, working on getting a trip out there. Fintan, who's uh, the winemaker at Chamisau.
0: uh-huh.
2: He uh, he makes you know, Burgundian varieties, he, Pinot Noir, uh, Chardonnay, awesome Rose, and um, we are starting to put an itinerary together. And then COVID starts like manning its way right. around the world, <laughs> it's like, oh man. So we were so close to going, uh, oh. but. Yeah, I I think Oregon is fantastic, um, and there's a lot of really intelligent, um, I'd say dynamic, tenacious people that are making awesome wines. You know, it's Brilliant. it's a very sort of, a, say, like jovial and connected group of people. And I think everybody kind of makes sure that, you know, we're all taken care of. So you can give your, your people feedback.
0: I, I've heard before um, from maybe David Adelsheim or somebody. I, I've heard that in Oregon there, there's there's a, a pretty big meeting of the minds with winemakers maybe once a year, and you taste other people's juice and, and give tips and all that. Is that something that you enjoy and you're you're part of?
2: Oh, totally! It's awesome. Um, you know, in particular, we've got the Chardonnay technical tasting, um, which is yeah, very sort of nerdy production-oriented, um, you know, we we usually have one ambassador organize each AVA, and it's like, all right, Chehalem, like, get us a neutral barrel sample, and we want to know everything, you know, you get all the chemistry, pick date, um, clone, root stock, elevation, and then, uh, you know, send in, like, a neutral sample, try not to do any new oak, and then all the AVA's, will send their wine. So generally, I'm, I'm guessing here, but you probably have about 40 different wines. Uh-huh. Um, you walk into the room and there's a series of large tables and you sit at a table with like 10 people and then you all say, okay, I'm gonna go taste all the wines and you can taste them by elevation or you can taste them by clone or rootstock, or pick date, or pH, um, crop load. That's awesome, yeah. So, cool. so then you get back to your table and you're like, I tasted crop load. And I don't know if I can find a difference, you know, or I tasted by cropland and oh my gosh, like low crop Chardonnay, I think is tasting a little bit better this vintage than high crop. And, you know, somebody will have an anecdote or an experiment that they've tested out. And, you know, the room just sort of like buzzes, but then, you know, you can you can say like, I didn't really care for that wine or I, I think this wine was really great. What did you do? And, I think it's those conversations where you know by submitting your wine you're telling people to dissect it and everybody's ready for feedback and mm-hmm. um, it's super cool it's it's probably one of my favorite uh, getting togethers of the year.
0: Well honestly that's I mean I mentioned I really love Oregon but the wine scene but that's that's one of the things that I love so much about it like if you if you go back and you look at the story of you know the first you know six or seven families who are out there who were trying to make Willamette happen and how there was it was no competition if one of us succeeded we all succeeded you know and and i just i i love that about it i think it's a cool very cool story
2: yeah that pan pioneering spirit i mean i can't imagine just like you know if we need something you just call up the local wine shop it's like i need a butterfly valve and like a pack of bacteria you know it's like hey no problem come on over i mean back then it's like oh you gotta you gotta figure it out (laughs) you know you gotta get out you're, you're going MacGyver everything, uh, to work. So it it's definitely a different time. And I think we, we have a lot, we have a lot to owe those, uh, those first pioneers of Oregon.
0: Plus the, the, the fact that they, um, worked so hard to legislate themselves, I thought was so interesting, you know, that, that they, they actually said, okay, you know, while there's only whatever, 10 of us, this is a good time to say, we're not gonna, you know, label it if it's less than X amount Pinot Noir. And if it's from Willamette, it says, well, and I, I think all of that is such a, such an interesting uh, way to get started. I think that's what makes the story so cool in Oregon very much to me.
2: Definitely, making it resilient. And I mean, you mentioned David Adelsheim. He, in my mind, is still like one of those people that it's putting a ton of time and energy, just protecting Oregon, you know, because there's a lot of attention now coming into the state from California, uh, from abroad. You know, we have more water, um less fires right now less fire mm-hmm. impact i mean and that can easily change but in right. terms of like you're saying varietal influence um percentage of different varieties going into a wine you know trying to make it more pure expression by not having like 25 percent Syrah and right 75 percent pinot and silicon so- and pinot noir it's like we're really trying to steer the opposite direction and yeah people like david are i think protecting us immensely right now which is cool. That. Even even today, you know, it's uh, he's a he's a like a pioneer, and he's still like going strong. And I think he he really cares about our industry still.
0: Yeah, I agree. Well, I don't think I can listen to you talk much about Chardonnay anymore without me tasting this. It's been staring at me the whole time. Awesome. Can get this? I want to have
2: a little. Bit. Yeah. So uh, I'll pull it up. So are you on the seventeen right now? Uh, I am. I'm on the seventeen. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, this puppy is still in really good shape. Um, You know, in terms of intent, like, I always write down what I want my wine to be. And then I make it, and then I taste it against, you know, like Nielsen data, or like the cool kids um, that are making Chardonnay that we, we like to drink and aspire to be like. And we taste all our wines double blind. And then... Yeah, I'm there with my boss, Nicholas Kie, incredible guy, um, master of wine, who I just saw you interview an, yeah. another master of wine the other day, which is super cool. It was very um, cool. yeah. mad respect for those people, yeah. you know, because they I have a broad saying. sense. Yeah, like they know marketing, sales, winemaking. Yeah, um, there's the,
0: every. Just, fa- I think he described it. Mark last week described it as every every facet of, of wine, from the, the the laws to the how you make it, why it tastes like this, everything. And I, I thought that was terribly interesting.
2: It's so cool. I mean, it it informs every decision you make and it just makes making decisions a lot easier. But, you know, when you're tasting with him, especially, and you're, you know, either dogging on a wine or building a wine up, like, you always got to make sure you got to <laughs> your vocabulary. Because sometimes, uh-huh. like, the whiny dog is your own. I had it happen to me recently. It's like, <laughs> like oh, shit. It wasn't that well. Maybe what oh, you know, you can't go back, uh, right? Uh, but the Chardonnay, I mean, we feel like the the way we're making Chardonnay right now is working. You know, we I, I'd say we build it for longevity. Um, I'm not a big like oily, viscous, buttery, blousy Chardonnay guy. I'm more of an angular shard guy. Um, yeah, after working with Dominic Lafon, he was our consultant winemaker. At Eveningland, where I began my career in Oregon, okay, and I worked there for about seven years. And um, you know, as like Dominique Lafon, consultant winemaker who makes wine in Pouilly-Montrachet, Mersault, and you know, he's got like Pinot Noir from Volnay, Pommard, uh-huh. and then he also makes a boatload of Chardonnay from the Mâcon, and he's in the Pouilly-Fuissé. He's uh-huh. he's popularizing those areas as well. But you know, he came to consult for us. And, you know, everybody in Oregon, I think at that point, was picking Chardonnay at a much higher bricks level, Mm -hmm. kind of like waiting for it to mature, um, to just become, I'd say, a little bit more like tropical and way more Mm fruity-tooty and planting Chardonnay. And I'd say like less than ideal places. It's like, we'll put Pinot right there in that perfect spot. No, we got some place down here. We'll put Chardonnay there. You know, it's like an afterthought. yeah, and it's like, ah, Chardonnay, what, what can it do? As I think, you know, back in the early 80s, there was uh, this this clone, it's Dijon 108 mm-hmm. from Davis, that everybody thought was like the bee's knees, and everybody planted it, and we had a string of cool vintages, and a lot of the fruit didn't even come off the vine, and the fruit that made it into bottle was a little acrid and not balanced, and mm-hmm. I just, I think the clone didn't really work well so there is more of a diversity of Dijon clone available in the mid 90s so people started putting that in and that was the exact uh clone that was at Seven Springs it was like a mid 90 planting you know Dominique came in he's like okay we're picking at like 21 and a half bricks um you know I think the the fruit's ready seeds are brown 13 percent potential alcohol you know the vineyard manager at the time was like what are you doing too early. Uh-huh. And then, you know, that's just part of the that's part of like all of the the vital steps I think that goes into making a tasty shard. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, just knocking it out of the park with the pick. But there's a lot of little things that you need to do, I think, to keep that Chardonnay um, interesting. And you know, I think when you're starting out with like a kind of a, I want to say a thinner frame, but because you're picking on the earlier side i feel like there's opportunity for that wine to kind of build and you know we press it with the champagne press cycle mm-hmm. so you can you can get a lot of nice phenolic content we keep it in barrel for about a year uh so that you know the wine can kind of soften out a little bit um we give it a we let it go through 100% malactic okay. so you get some of those like nice sort of lactone, some of that creamy sort of factor, but you also have an incredible amount of acidity because you picked on the earlier side. And then at the end of all that period, we put it into stainless. So we take all the wine, all the leaves, put it into stainless steel. And by doing that, you you mix it all up and you get this incredible sort of umami dimension to the the Chardonnay. And I, I think that you know, all these little things kind of stack up together to make something really, I'd say really interesting. And I, I do feel like, you know, you still have quite a bit of life. I think like when you say mal people are like, oh no, I can't stand butter and cream. It's like, but don't, don't think about it from the sense that there's like a bunch of alcohol and there's a bunch of ripeness. Like our wines are like lemon, lime, citrus, like they've got lots of white tree flower on the nose, and we're going for angularity, um, not just not something big and um, big and chubby. I, I don't know. We really try to stay away from that.
0: Well, yeah, it's, it's delicious. Yeah, thank you. As far as you're talking about the ripeness and the tropical notes, you know, there's there's a lot of fruit here, but it's not you, banana, pineapple. You know, some, it's not something you think of as a very ripe fruit. It's much more. Uh, well you just said it but, but lemon lemon and lime are the the fruits that come out first
2: but. totally just looking for something i think that's like persistent on the palate. um you know we we look for yeah something that will stain bottle a little while i think even our chardonnays when they hit the market like we're just sort of we're tiptoeing like from the 17s and into the 18s mm-hmm. and you know i think the 17s are going to be showing well I think they're gonna hit their stride in five years, but I think they will last as long as 10 years.
0: Well, I mean, the, the acid is plenty to last for a long, I mean, this tastes like it, but also, you know, you mentioned the the conversation about 100% mallow and yeah, they, it, this isn't at all a, a smell of butter or something on the nose. It, it adds a little, maybe a creamy texture, but it's not at all something that I would put in that category of a something that I would say was 100% mallow, you know, if I was just
2: tasting it. Definitely. I, I agree. And even with our oak selection, we do about 30% new oak. So, you know, we're we're looking for, like, just a kiss of of oak. Um, I think the oak that we select as well isn't extremely compact, or it's not impactful. You know, we, we look for oak that just sort of, like, subtly holds the wine up. And I think in this Chardonnay in particular, too, you know, in some wines I like to make things, like, slightly perceivable. But with this wine, you know, we try to make all these – different components kind of pull. It's like almost like a spider web. So like not one thing is pulling the wine too far. So it just kind of gives you something to to think about and to question, you know? It, I mean, it, it, it's our our definition of balance, you know, but I think with the Chardonnay, I, I don't like anything to to stick out too much.
0: Yeah, no, um, it's it's very much like the orchestra. It's just beautiful music, not a third violinist, you know? It's exactly yeah, what I'm right. out of it,
2: yeah. Totally. Yeah. I, I'm really happy. I'm really happy with how it came together. Um yeah, Chardonnay is just one of those things. Like you're you're constantly kind of you know wondering if like your press program is doing the like what it should and it's uh-huh. like couldn't can I hang more fruit out there? You know, if I do less fruit, like it might intensify the wine, but am I just like chopping fruit on the ground for the sake of nothing? So, for nothing, right. You know, it's when we start making more. I'll be able to start experimenting more. But right now, you know, I feel like I've found my groove. Um, And if Mother Nature serves us up something different, you know, you always change what you do stylistically to kind Mm -hmm. of like curve with the season. But I really like how our Chardonnays come together and um, they're just, I like drinking them too, so.
0: Well, I think it's it's, great. Um, I I wanted to ask you a little bit about, you're talking about some of the the variations and things. so you've only been with Archery Summit. Um, this is your third harvest, I think you said.
2: Third that's harvest. right.
0: So uh, have you, uh, do you anticipate or are interested in changing up clonal variation, rootstock, anything like that? Or is are you pretty happy with, with what you're getting as far as all that's concerned?
2: It's a great question. I think on most of our sites, I think the combination of clone and rootstock work really well. Um, I think now that we're dealing with, warmer seasons um, mm-hmm. on average you know we're we're seeing you know higher degree days and I think the conditions are getting hotter for growing Pinot and I think a lot of people are like oh well, yeah can we plant other varieties to kind of combat climate change and I'm thinking we're doing Pinot Noir very well I, I think we've been on the margin as a viticultural region for years and I think we're like right in the middle now we're in the hot spot I I, I think that we're onto something great Mm -hmm. um i think you know out of all five of our vineyard sites that we we own and farm in the dundee hills i think arcus which is our largest Mm -hmm. and red hills have a really nice sort of um clone and rootstock variation i mean out of all 80 acres that we have we have like 72 different clone and rootstock combinations
0: Is, is it all american
2: uh rootstock they they are yeah, we, I mean, we typically, 101.14 and 3309, you know, they're both, like, semi-divigorating, phylloxory phylox- resistant. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the only one that I'm not terribly nuts about is riparia,
0: mm-hmm. which
2: is more shallow rooted. And, you know, when your top soil horizons are depleted of water and you get into the, the last part of the season, like, if you've got a really dry year, you know, it's really hard to get water into that, that soil like profile mm-hmm. and like kind of give those those vines their last drink we end up pulling it off and i feel like you know that root stock um no matter what clone we have on top of it tends to behave a little bit differently um it also allows us to kind of stagger our picks because you know those shallow rooted root stocks tend generally come up first so it helps us make it easier in
0: the whole. yeah that makes sense
2: yeah yeah and we we can like <laughs> you know it's like rip riparian first like and then 101 14 to 33 and nine. we can kind of um space off into the rest of the harvest so we're not all jam-packed with fruit at the same time are, are, are you but, all
0: having to deal with handpicking is everything handpicked too or do you have it thing? is so yeah uh, getting the labor has got to be intense when the whole valley is trying to grab the same people at the same time, I'm sure. It's
2: tough. I mean, and you know, you've got the pandemic right now too, where it's like, there's a lot of people that live in the same house. And, you know, we have a lot of procedures to just make sure that everybody's safe. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like, as we kind of tiptoe towards harvest, you're just like, please. Like, (laughs) I hope that everybody, you know, just doesn't like make out and hug each other too much. Yeah, it's like- just, just like keep our distance guys like let's just be smart about this but you know we we have a uh, five people of our own and mm-hmm. they're incredible and um we we work with a contractor and okay. they supply us with labor and we've got a very strong relationship with them and we tend to pick on the earlier side too because i like to keep freshness in my shard and my right. pinos mm-hmm. so we tend to be earlier on the curve um and then, especially this year too, I'm trying to pick like early in the morning, you know, or late at night, so that it's cool. Uh, people aren't like over exhausted, and you know, the the company that we work with actually likes that too. It's just because like they can schedule us in the morning and then just kind of roll into like a, um, you know, a morning pick and then right. call it a day. So, you know, we're we're strategizing all those things right now. But it's hard when you're like, come to my really steep vineyard <laughs> and run up and, you know, pick into the buckets. You know, it's like, it's a tough, it's a tough place to incentivize. And we try not to do too much picking in our really steep sites um, all in one day. We try to stagger those things so that people aren't exhausted and then people want to come and pick for us.
0: Right. Well, I'm sure. Yeah. So that's a good call. Totally. <laughs> Well, I, I do want to get to the Pinot and there's a couple other things I want to ask about. But I want to take a second because um, this is so funny, but it popped up on my phone this morning, uh, you know, the the one year ago where you were or whatever. And the one year ago for me was actually at Archery Summit, which was oh, wow. great. Yeah. So we went um, myself, uh, Aaron Harris, who's a, a supplier that I'm close to, and Michael Kramer, who's like my boss's boss is way up there. Uh, and we um, we visited Archery Summit. The things that I remember outside of how delicious the wine was and how gorgeous everything was, was um, one, you guys were nice enough. Gigi, I got to give Gigi credit. Gigi! Gigi! <laughs> he, he hooked us up with this little, uh, a nice guest house, um, as well as getting to visit the winery and everything, and hooked me up with you today, so I love that. Um, awesome. But just so gorgeous to walk out every morning and literally see what, you know, you, you always hear about fog until you actually see it. If you're from where I'm from, it's not really even close to what it is, but just getting up in the morning and seeing how thick it was everywhere and then seeing hot hot air balloons in the background, I don't know what that's about, and then just watching it slowly burn off. So that's one thing that I love, just how gorgeous it was. The other one was um, at Archery Summit, we were uh, in one of the the fermenting room because there was tanks everywhere, Um, but there's a ping pong table and somebody there just beat the heck out of me and Aaron and I guess that's what you guys uh, do in your downtime. But uh, that—that's—that was a fun memory too. I kind of wanted to share that.
2: That's awesome. I bet it was Brandon. Uh, your hat kind of quiet. Uh, <laughs> he
0: was definitely quiet. Yeah.
2: Yeah, he's yeah. Brandon's like the Maverick. He's good at tennis and uh, and ping pong. He he'll he'll definitely take you. He's a very humble guy. He just <laughs> is like yeah, like let's play.
0: See, I'm yeah, the opposite. I'm not humble, and I thought I was great, and I was <laughs> not great next to this guy. I might, I might have got one or two points, literally.
1: It's so funny. Yeah, we
2: gotta get that ping pong table out more. We've just been like, you know, very careful about where we work and how right, close sure. we are. But I mean, hey, come on, it's ping pong. Like you're like, what? I, I should know this. It's like 12 feet apart or something, but. Yeah.
0: It's it's a good yeah. distance, but when I play ping pong, I'm screaming and everything else, so it probably is still a bad idea right now.
2: It's so funny. Well, I'm sorry I missed you. I was probably probably traveling or something. No, yeah.
0: next time I'm out there.
2: Oh, for sure.
0: But so so kind of moving on. There's there's two other main things that I would love to get you for. Um, is is one? I obviously I want to taste through the Dundee um, Pinot Noir. Um, but the other thing is. I I would like to hear a little bit more about the sub-AVAs that you guys are working in and kind of the differences that you find between them.
2: Definitely. Well, I think, you know, for us in particular, we're really whittling it down to Dundee Hills. Um, We work with Eole Amity, and I I love that because that's where it kind of cut my teeth in Oregon, and Mm -hmm. it's such a fun AVA. Chardonnay-wise, there's, I think, a little bit more verve in the Chardonnays, in the old amity compared compared to the dundee hills Mm -hmm. um there's just a little bit more of that intense electric acidity um you know i think the tendency to get overripe is difficult in yola amity Mm -hmm. but in dundee i mean with our five different vineyard sites each one of them behaves so different um from the rest like Uh arcus because it's rockier and it's multi-aspected so you've got you know, uh, east facing, west facing, south facing, and then little, little sort of together aspects that you undulate. Um, but essentially, the whole vineyard's like a V, where you you drive into the top, go down, go back up, and then they kind of peel off of that V. Um, okay. You know, so that's that in and it itself has a lot of sort of more like uh, I'd say like heady uh, textural. Darker profiles, and then you go into Red Hills, which is literally just down the street, south facing really deep, jory soil um, and that tends to be a little bit more fruit focused um, the I'd say the fruits are like just a lot sexier, the vines are healthier, so it's like I would say healthy healthy vines, healthy wines, you know mm-hmm. like it just everything just comes off the vine beautifully behaves wonderfully, and then we've got our three vineyards that are right around the winery so the winery is on Summit Vineyard and Summit tends to have like you know, deeper soil. Um, we're south facing there as well, but the fruit profile. And I think this is where clone comes in. I think the clonal selection at Summit um, mm-hmm. is a slightly more monolithic than it is at like Red Hills or Arcus, for instance. So um, it's one vineyard I think I can kind of tweak a little bit with, you know, the clone and Rootstock variation. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're just taking out a few rows every year and incrementally planting to like, keep the vines healthy and young, keep their vascular tissue unclogged by you know any sort of pathogen. Um, and then we've got two vineyards that are right next to Summit called Renegade Ridge and Archer's Edge. One's higher and more west-facing, so Renegade Ridge tends to be a little bit more angular, um, more orangey, uh, more citrus. And then Archer's Edge is like the ripe kind of cinnamon bear, you know, like, and it's, it's cool having all these different pieces. And like I was saying earlier, 72 different blocks that we get to mix and match and ferment in three to five ton ferments in Oak concrete and stainless steel. So there's just a ton of interconnectedness. And I mean, that's essentially what our Dundee Hills is. It's a bunch of micro, Ah, uh, ferments from these multi-faceted, multi-layered blocks from our sites. Um,
0: do do you find I, it? Uh, do do you find that each year your makeup for from block to block is pretty similar in this particular wine, or is it really all over the place depending on the vintage?
2: It's a great question. I mean, I think that's like my boulder. You know, like finding out what blocks have the most to say every year you know if the berries are small or large if we have some botrytis or not um you know looking for consistency and i always call it soul you know like you like acid tannin color you know you like polyphenols and it's like like does a wine have a little something extra and those things are hard to put your finger on so as much as it's like tasting berries and you know like running around and and like figuring out like, Oh, that's really good. It's, it's numbers. Mm-hmm. So we're pretty disciplined with like, okay, this, this block made it into our single vineyard, this block got blended. Um, and it got into our single vineyard like three years in a row. So we'll start to kind of treat some blocks a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. And if our vineyard managers like, Hey, I only have time to do this today. It's like go in the, the block that we think is a little bit better. Mm-hmm. And then we'll work in the other blocks later. So, I think the Dundee Hills generally is, is a higher percentage of Arcus and Red Hills just because those two vineyards are our largest. Mm-hmm. It's always going to have more of those just because it's a sheer numbers game. But it, it sort of just depends on, you know, how the, the blend comes together. Because unlike the Chardonnay, I, I do like the Dundee Hills to be a little bit more approachable. Mm -hmm. I like it to live a while. Like I I want the consumer to kind of like get a little bit more bang for their buck and have something tasty to drink now, but also something they can lay down in their cellars for a little while. Mm -hmm. Um, Finding that line between ageability and approachability is always difficult. I'm sure. But um, something to mention with the Dundee Hills too, I don't know if you perceive it, but I like to interlay a whole cluster. So I find there to be like this nice sort of spice component to the wine. Um, Whole Cluster is one of those where it's like malolactic fermentation. You know, if you say malolactic, people are like, whoa. So Whole Cluster is another one, I think, where people are like, I don't like that. Uh And it's like, well, as a winemaker, you know, I I treat a little bit differently. Um, I don't know that I allow it to really jump out there a lot. Um, I try to make it a little bit more nuanced, but I do about 30% whole cluster on average, which essentially means for anybody that doesn't know, that means, you know, we have a destemmer uh, that you put a, a cluster in and it, it breaks off all the berries and it picks the stem out. And we, we throw the stem out, we compost it. Uh, but with whole cluster, we take that destemmer unit out of the way and we just allow the, the cluster to go on the sorting line. We take out bad ones and then boop, it just plops right into the ferment. So you get a little bit more of that green component. Um, A lot of people bury their whole cluster in the ferment where they'll do all their whole cluster first and then they'll put all their destemmed fruit on top of that. So if you start fermenting, that whole cluster is sort of trapped on the bottom. And when the wine starts heating up, that's when you start getting extraction because you have more alcohol and that that warmness is a huge contributing factor to how much you're actually pulling out of the fruit. So what I like to do is I like to keep the whole cluster on the very top of the ferment. So I'll destem stem all the stuff down here, keep the whole cluster on top, and then I'll pump over my wine. And the only time that the wine comes into interface with that whole cluster is when it goes over the top. So it's almost like I'm making the tea. Mm -hmm. But then as soon as it starts warming up, then I'll start to pump over and that area that I'm pumping over, I'll punch at the same time. So you're barely just kind of getting that whole cluster into the wine. Like you're you're pushing it in and extracting it just a little bit. And when you get to that stage of the fermentation, the the whole cluster is no longer green. It's it's browned out. So you get more of that sort of like brown spice. It's more like cinnamon, cardamom. Um, It has more of like a kind of an Earl Grey tea sort of component, but I think it makes the nose a little bit more interesting and you don't pick up on a lot or you don't pull a lot of that like harsh, like green short chain tandem. So that's something, I mean, I'm constantly testing that out and like what it is to do it in versus other vintages. And, you know, that's one of my like intrigues right now. It's like, okay, how are we going to incorporate whole cluster this year without Allowing it to take over the characteristic of the wine. So,
0: so, it's in, so in the whole cluster, uh, you're actually putting like you say the whole clusters are in on top, outside of the punch downs, but but they're in there and they're literally fermenting inside of the grape, carbotic maceration style, and then they're literally going to explode at that point when the I guess there's too much CO two in it and and explodes into everything
2: else. Usually, you help it. You usually will help it break up. So by like pumping over, um, for the first half of the ferment, you keep those berries intact. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when we pump over and punch down, you're essentially, you're you're getting that cap wet. And then when you get your punch down tool, you're essentially punching that berry down in that cluster and you're still keeping it intact because you're going very slowly. Okay. So you're getting the extraction of that pump over and you're also macerating and extracting by punching but you're doing it in a like a hyper gentle fashion hmm. we we coined the term it's because uh in french um a pump over is romatage, mm-hmm. and uh, a punch down is a josh so we call them uh, we call them a romo p where like you're doing a pump over and a punch down at the same time i like it it's more labor intensive because you've got somebody holding a wine hose and then you've got somebody punching um, mm-hmm. but if I can swing it each year and I've got enough labor to do it, I love how it, it extracts. Um, and because we're picking on an earlier schedule, like I feel like we can extract more. And then the Dundee Hills in particular, I feel like lends itself to extraction. Like you can extract more from the Pinot. Whereas with Fruit from the old Amity, I feel like you have to be very conscious about not taking too much.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I feel like the Pinot Noir and Eagle Amity tends to be a little bit more wind-beaten and the skins are a little thicker, mm-hmm. um, they're darker. And even though it's the same soil, this is jory soil with uh, lots of iron, uh, lots of clay loam, um, I feel like Dundee lends itself to you know, extracting. Um, yeah. It's, it's so much fun. It's so much fun. I, I, I know, I love,
0: I can nice. just feel your passion about it the whole time you're talking. I'm, I'm so happy I got to sit down with you.
2: Um, yeah, think, this is great. And,
0: and taste it, I mean, it, it's delicious. Do you do with, uh, so you guys do some single vineyard stuff, right, or um, single block stuff, the more higher end things?
2: We do, we do. So we make five single vineyards. Um, Arcus okay. is, is in wholesale distribution. Um, so that wine, you know, it's kind of like our flagship, like they're the oldest vines we have on any of our properties in 1973, planting, um, rooted vines. And then we have our Red Hills bottling also, also single vineyard. And I think, you know, I'm always kind of back and forth between those two. They're like, they're the largest. So there's, uh, I think a lot of, you know, pressure there to like make them really speak and make them make them really tasty, mm-hmm. and then uh, Red Hills, or oh, not Red Hills, uh, Renegade Ridge, Archer's Edge, and Summit Vineyard. Those are all club wines, and okay. you know I can be a little bit more. I want to say experimental, but like Summit, Summit's uh, more expensive, so I try to I kind of make one a little bit more beefy. I tend to like, yeah. put a little bit more stuffing into it. Um, Do and you then play Archer's with Edge, the whole
0: cluster with all those? also oh
2: yeah yeah 100 (laughs) percent. oh that's so cool i think the only vineyard that i probably would consider backing off a little bit on just because i like the way um it behaves like without a lot of whole cluster is summit Mm -hmm. so that's a one consideration i have going into harvest this year um but i mean again this this year is going to be a whole cluster year these clusters like a lot of them are like they're they're tiny Mm -hmm. and then on the clusters are these little tiny berries. And if you put one of these clusters through a distemmer, it's just going to be like And just, you're going to end up with uh, a rachis with a bunch of broken berries on it that's going to go away. Uh-huh. And then underneath the distemmer it's just going to be a bunch of mushy stuff, I think. Uh, I don't think we're going to get a lot of really clean um, berry removal. So I anticipate you know, when we have larger clusters come in off certain blocks, I'll probably destem those. And then with smaller clusters, smaller berries, we're probably just going to do whole cluster ferment on those. Do so yes. you think, ever do a hundred percent whole cluster? I do. <laughs> on one of our wines, we actually have a wine called whole cluster. And it <laughs> historically it's been like 70% or 90%. So when I came in, it's like, we're doing a hundred.
0: Like, <laughs> We're gonna call it it. We're gonna do
2: it. <laughs> let's do it. So oh, it's at the eighteen and nineteen. Uh, they're lovely, and it's fun too because people put their nose into it and they're like, "What the heck?" Like pickled jalapeno, and it has like this really nice spice. And you know, we we have a way of tempering it because of how we extract and how we kind of build the ferment. Uh-huh. So I don't I don't make it too punchy, but it's cool to show people, like, all right, this is what happens when you do 100% whole cluster. Like, this is what it smells and tastes like. It's super fun.
0: Well, I, I love it. I look forward to trying the whole cluster at some point. Um, I'll yeah. send you a bottle. Please, definitely. <laughs> um, yeah. Thanks so much for the time. You know, keep up the good work. I, I love what you're doing out there. The wine's delicious. And uh, people at home, uh, I'll tell you in probably the next segment where you can find some of this stuff. But uh, check out Archery Summit, it's delicious.
2: Hey, thank you. And thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. You're, you're such a, I love your, I love your show. Um, actually I watch it often and yeah, I, I, uh, I feel, I feel honored to be on today and Mm -hmm. thanks for taking the time to, uh, to talk with me. Nah, you love it. Thanks, man. So welcome back to Ride
0: Between the Wines. I have a brand new segment this week that uh, is going to replace the local restaurant segment until next week. And so I'd like to introduce my friend Josh Taylor, the uh, I'm Mike Wine Guy. I guess you're going to be Josh, the sensible bartender. Yeah.
1: Uh, I think I think sensible might be a stretch, Mike.
0: Well, and that brings us to our next. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so Josh, um, long time uh industry vet, obviously from the service industry here in Columbia. In addition to being very knowledgeable about the industry of bartending, the world of beer, he actually has his name carved in not one but two of the bathrooms at the Wig. And if you're local, you know. Exactly how amazing that is. That was
1: a real defining point in my life. I I, uh, I really felt like I I just made it in the Columbia service industry. scene when my wall was on, my, my name was on both walls. I I
0: don't know that there's I don't know there's a higher thing that can be said of somebody. I mean that's that's it's I don't think I'm on either of them.
1: I, I'm so. fairly certain at one point my name was on the wall in Art Bar as well. Yeah. This, is a, this is a
0: so if you ever go to a bar anywhere in Columbia and Josh Taylor's name is not written somewhere, come on, let's get on that.
1: Yeah, or you're you're just in the wrong place. Like, please yeah, do not that's put my a name. That bar you shouldn't be. In. <laughs> yeah, don't put my name on the wall and like like say Chili's or Applebee's. Let's uh, let's stay away from those.
0: Yeah, just put his phone number. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so anyway, so this new segment is going to be called. We actually haven't come up with a name for it yet. I'm thinking seriously or you got to be kidding me. I don't know. We'll
1: we'll come up with We're something. Gonna
0: come, it's going to be clever. Yeah. Maybe we'll
1: have you guys help. We'll yeah, see. We, we might. I mean. Yeah. You have intelligent followers.
0: I, we should have been on this podcast a long time ago. So anyway, so oh, that was just
1: a shameless plug for popularity for me.
0: Oh, you follow me? <laughs>
1: I do. I do.
0: <laughs> so here's the idea behind the segment. Um, as somebody who is behind the bar weekly, and as somebody who has worked in restaurants and, and uh, with with that scene for years, uh, we all know there are those people who make um, decisions rookie decisions or just things that don't think everything out and we're not mocking people but sometimes it's funny and uh, I'm mocking people and, and Josh is actually specifically mocking people so uh, so with that said I'm just going to check in with him every week and tell some of his favorite gripes or weird things somebody has decided to do this week
1: so I didn't know until this year because I've never bartended on the lake before that like most uh, most bars and restaurants their amateur hour days are Halloween, St. Patrick's Day, New Year's Eve. A lot of industry people won't go out on those days because you really do get the worst of the worst. The people that normally don't drink at all are out there ripping shots or, you know, chugging a bottle of champagne. It's um, Interesting. But I've never worked on the lake before, and I've come to find out that holiday weekends like uh, Memorial Day, Fourth of July, Labor Day, those are the amateur hour weeks or days for lake hours. Um, this past weekend, Labor Day was a prime example and uh, I encountered way more stupidity condensed into a shorter time frame than would normally be the case on any given Saturday and Sunday. Uh, Some of my favorites, actually probably my favorite, it's something that I honestly have never encountered before, uh, was when I was going to close out someone's tab and I'd say what's your tab under?" Now I'm hoping that most of you out there in internet land or whatever we're going to call this would know that. So, my name's Josh Taylor. What's your tab under? Taylor. This weekend was like, What's your tab under? <laughs> Jeff. Jeff. All right, that's what I'm going with. Um, there's like seven Jeffs here, Chief. Uh, which Jeff are you? And it didn't just happen once, it literally happened five, six, seven times. Um, and it was uh, my, my co-worker that was with me that day. We were just dumbfounded. We were staring at each other. I've, I've, I've never, ever encountered that in all my years in the service industry. So that was a fun one. Yeah,
0: that's a...
1: That's... No um, <laughs> one thing I have encountered before, and it did happen a couple of times this weekend as well, is that it's the red card. Yep. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You're I very mean,
0: self-assured. Um, you can, you can <laughs> get away with that with the black card, maybe? I don't, I don't know that you can... <laughs> <laughs> no. How often do you get a peering over and it's like, oh, it's that
1: one? Um, I, not very often. Yeah. Um, but at that point, I definitely question. You know, <laughs> exactly like, who it is, yeah. yeah. Is this really your tab? Or are you like, oh, well, that one's like, that one's only like eight seventy five. I'll, I'll pay that tab. I like it. So one interesting thing about the two places I currently bartend and Shameless Plug and You're Welcome. Uh, Brian and Andrew, I work at K Cowboy in Lexington and I work at Fishwater Beer Garden out on the lake in uh, Leesville Um, So both of those places are very craft beer centric and neither one of them has a liquor license So it's just beer and wine Um, Going back to the whole amateur hour not really knowing where they are thing this weekend uh, I had one guy walk up and he asked me what scotches we had and I said, well, you know, I'm sorry We've only got beer and wine and I kind of, you know, asked him what he normally drank, and those two things he said, I only drink really good scotch. And I just kind of stared at him because I didn't, I didn't know my next move on that. Did I you mean, not have any hidden scotch under I, the table? For I did not. In fact, the there wasn't was like needle in either
0: of these bars.
1: There wasn't a secret handshake or like a passcode he could whisper into my ear and be like, "Ha, you're good, man. You're yeah, in the club. I'm gonna, go, uh, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go unlock the vault and bring out the <laughs> scotch now. Thanks for playing." That's great. Uh, I just, I said, man, I don't. I, we've only got beer and wine. And once again, he repeated, but I only drink scotch. And I finally was like, I, you might be at the wrong bar. Yeah. I'm not trying to be rude, I will gladly serve you anything we have here, but I just don't have scotch. I don't have any liquor at all. Um, at one point, I'm not gonna lie, uh, before it became funny for me that day, I got a little bit of rage building. Yeah. And uh, a guy walked up, and I would just gotten through telling the three people in front of him we didn't have liquor.
0: All three of them were Jeff, too. All three Jeffs.
1: One of them was the G-E-O-F-F, the mean,
0: You're not fooling anybody.
1: (laughs) Um, But, you know, I'm I'm a loud guy, and there was music playing, so I was was very, very much projecting. So he was definitely within hearing distance of me yelling, unless he was deaf. And if he was deaf, then I apologize, bud. Um, But he said, what's the closest thing that you can make me to a tequila sunrise? And I just dead-eyed him and said, not a goddamn thing.
0: Wait, 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 wait! I, I, I wasn't. Is this Scotch guy? This no, is, no, was this, like, this, this is a whole was a, different, a whole okay, different guy.
1: This was like, you know, just like, one Scotch of the Scotch guy really
0: doesn't get it. No, so.
1: no, no, this is. I think this guy was behind Scotch guy or in the <laughs> general, the general time frame. Um, you know, and that's fine. We don't always know what we have. You know, what each place serves. Of course. But if I point blank tell you I don't have liquor, then I just I don't have liquor. Right. Um, and that goes back to the thing like I said. Uh, both places, both Keg Cowboy and uh, Fishwater, are both very craft centric. Um, both places offer some, uh, you know, some some choices like uh, Keg Cowboy has Narragansett Lager, mm-hmm. and Bat Blue, um, you know, to kind of like, for, yeah, for your for your domestic drinkers. Mm-hmm. And out at Fishwater, uh, we generally have at least one craft lager on tap, and then we've also got a Founder Solid Gold Lager, um, and we've got uh, Red Stripe in the bottles. Huh. You know, Lake Bar Red Stripe generally that pleases people. <laughs> Not always. Uh, when I tell people we don't have domestics, uh, I'm like, sorry, man, we don't have any domestic beer. We're craft-centric, but here's these three options. Well, then I'll have a Miller Lite. Yeah, sir, we don't we don't have domestics. Um, these are our options. Coors Light. <laughs> and I was like, oh, you caught me. We've got Coors Light. We've had it all <laughs> along. I was just fucking with you. Wait, am I allowed to curse on this? Because Absolutely. Of, okay, good. Cause <laughs> I'm I wouldn't have even you. invited you on <laughs> Well, that's like, uh, I have two friends of mine when they answer the phone. They say, uh, you're on speakerphone and the kids are in the car. Mm.
0: A genius, yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. Mm. And you two know who you are.
0: <laughs> <sighs> well, this is Josh Taylor. And it is. And you're going to see a lot of him cheers guys uh so cheers chin chin.
1: I, I, you know drinking my uh oh, yeah. coors banquet as we talk about uh i thought you were gonna air. say red
0: stripe i thought that was a red stripe
1: isn't it's, that a it's, red
0: stripe bottle
1: it's a similar you know it is a similar shape bottle and i've never really thought about that before i uh i don't know the actual connection there maybe there's not one Hooray beer exactly. that's the right people right yeah it
0: everybody
1: is, here is younger than that. all right signing off
0: sir thanks y'all there you have it another episode down thank you so much to everybody involved in this episode Obviously, thank you to Ian. Um, Fantastic to get to talk to you for a few minutes. Your wine's delicious. Go out and try Archery Summit wines. Seriously. Thank you to Josh Taylor for your time. Thank you to State Street Pub for allowing us to do a uh, uh, filming there. And thank you to you. I appreciate you watching this. Please tell your friends if you're listening. Either way, I appreciate it. Uh, If you're watching, press the little logo up here my face. Subscribe. Share. Like. Other than that, we'll see you next week when we're talking to Melissa Stackhouse, the amazing winemaker at a Sonoma, and we're talking about Simi winery So, uh, until then, chin chin. Boom. <laughs>